Well, the other thing I was going to do, I was thinking of reading this during the announcements time, but I'll go ahead and do it now before we pray and jump into the first sermon on this series of the book of Galatians this morning. All right, there we go. I think I'm all hooked up, wired up. Everything looks good. If not, somebody let me know. I don't know if anybody here has heard of the Babylon Bee. They are what is known as a satire site. So I'm going to read you an article that they posted one time that was tongue-in-cheek, poking fun at the contemporary church in America that we so often see today and the lack of simply teaching what the Bible says and following the Bible as a strategy to advance the gospel forward, which is what God has commanded us to do. I think if you look at it closely in the Bible, you'll see there were at least a few prophets who used sarcasm to kind of get back at their enemies and get the truth through. So I think that it's okay. But before we pre, before we pray and preach the message, this article is entitled, Local Church Tries Bold New Tactic of Just Teaching the Bible. A local church found a new surge in popularity after making the revolutionary decision to forego its normal attempts to appeal to the masses and instead just start teaching the Bible. I don't know why we didn't think of this before, said the pastor, lead pastor at Abundant River of Faith and Life Church Ministries. We've done all the other stuff for years. Carnivals, classic car shows, sermon series built around clips from popular movies. But it turns out what people actually need in their lives is to hear God's word. Who would have thought? The church had struggled to bring people through the doors on Sunday mornings for the last decade, resorting to revamping its presentation with fog machines, theatrical staging, lighting worthy of a touring rock band, gourmet espresso drinks, and trendy topical life improvement messages. We thought that would really help us draw new people, the pastor said. All that ended up happening was filling the building with a bunch of people who loved coffee and free daycare for their kids. Things changed when one humble congregant who requested to remain anonymous suggested the pastoral staff begin just teaching lessons from the Bible itself. It was a night and day difference, the pastor said. We actually started seeing people's lives changed as if preaching from the Bible has some kind of divine power to really reach a person's heart. They didn't teach me this in seminary. Wild stuff. At publishing time, the church was reportedly considering doing away with its rock concert style worship presentation and singing hymns with the idea that people may actually praise God better when the songs they they sing are theologically sound. It's funny, but it's the truth. It's the reality of the church in America far too often. I recently saw an ad on Facebook where Pastor Kaya, a women pastor from the Liquid Church, announced that beginning Sunday morning she was going to be preaching from the Barbie movie and asked everybody to wear pink to the service, men included. All joking aside, I believe that what the world needs today and what the church needs is sound teaching line by line from the word of God itself. And that's what we're going to do, whether it's popular or not. But I'll tell you, church, if we stay the course, I believe that the worse the climate gets amongst churches that are not trying to preach the word, there will be more people who are hungry for the word of God that will be seeking a church that is doing its humble best to preach it. I'm going to pray now and we'll get into the introduction of this message. The title of the message this morning is Rebuking Legalism, and that will be the title of the series from Galatians as well. I'm going to ask you to stick with me, especially at the beginning of the message, as I have a long introduction to read before we get into the message. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd be with us this morning. I pray you would help me, (coughs) Father, to be able to get through the material you've given me this morning while at the same time minding the Holy Spirit for what to leave out, for what to to put in that may not be in my notes. I pray that you would speak to all of us through the preaching of your word. Lord, I know that there's nobody here this morning who came to hear me and what I think, but rather these people are all here on this cold Sunday morning because they want to hear from the Lord. We all need to hear from you, Father. We need your word. Without it, we suffer. Without it, we dry up. Without it, we die spiritually. Without it, we are not renewed in the inward man as you have told us we should be. So help me this morning to look to the text without prejudice or agenda and to the best of my ability be able to say, thus saith the Lord, so we may be able to stand on the authority of the word of God. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The following is a written testimony from a wife who experienced her husband being enamored with the Hebrew roots movement. She says, a few years ago, my husband and I started to feel a stirring in our spirits and a growing discontent with the status quo we had experienced for many years in various churches. At that time, we had been very active in our church for four years, but as we began seeking the Lord, we felt an emotional disconnect happening and believed God was calling us out of our church. Through a series of events, we were drawn to a church about 35 minutes from our home. Just as I was settling in comfortably there, my husband decided out of curiosity to visit a messianic congregation close to our home. After his first visit, he came home all excited about how warm and accepting everyone had been and said he wanted me to come with him the next week. So the following Friday evening, our whole family went to a meeting followed by a potluck meal. The people were quite friendly, but it was also foreign to me and not comfortable. The children did not enjoy it at all. I tried a couple of more times, but something was just feeling like red flags in my spirit. Some of the things I started hearing were very concerning to me. In the beginning, my husband agreed. Things being taught did not sit right with him either, but he felt a sense of community and continued to attend. It wasn't long before he started becoming consumed with reading their materials, attending meetings Friday nights, as well as most of the day on Saturdays and watching DVDs by various Hebrew Roots teachers. It was about this time my husband lost his job. By then, he was calling himself a Messianic Jew, even though she notes, we are Gentiles. He had filed a request with his company to be excused from working Saturdays due to religious practice. And although there was no solid proof, I have my suspicions that this may have played a part in him being let go. He also began to grow his beard long and full and started wearing zitzits, although he would tuck them inside his pants, which is the traditional ritual tassels that would be attached to the garments of the Jews. Pork and shellfish were out. <coughs> that means no bacon, okay? Just so you realize the weight of this. <laughs> and he began to scrutinize what I did around the house on Saturdays as to what was work and what was okay. He asked me to start preparing our meals on Friday so that they could just be warmed on Saturdays and I would not need to cook. Our usual Saturday family time was now spent at home. And if we did go anywhere, we couldn't spend any money. Stopping for an ice cream cone on a Saturday was now wrong. She then says, my husband started becoming very negative towards churches. And I noticed a very judgmental attitude towards members of our previous churches. He no longer wanted to attend church with the children and me. Since he had no job, he would spend day after day watching videos about the law and end times prophecies. When I would question what he was doing to find another job, he would say the Lord would open a door at the right time and that he was feeling blessed with a season of time to study. We were living off his retirement account, savings, and when those gave out, credit cards. During his first year of involvement with Hebrew Roots Movement, I must admit I was totally freaking out. We had numerous arguments as we discussed scripture. I felt like a yoke of slavery was being put around my neck, one that I had not asked for. But for keeping the peace, I tried to work within his new convictions. I felt like my husband was becoming more of a stranger with every passing day. He tried to ban Christmas that first year, but when he saw how upset the kids were, he backed down. He said we were free to do whatever, but he would have no part of it. Easter was the same. Many, many discussions of scripture would invariably turn to arguing again to the point that my 11-year-old son asked me if we were going to divorce over our arguments about the Bible. My teenage daughter had slipped into a deep depression and started pulling away from God, saying she didn't know what to believe anymore since the things she had been raised her whole life to believe, her father was now saying, we're all wrong. She goes on to tell that they stopped going to church completely, but how the Lord worked it out through a man they met at Home Depot that invited them to a sound Bible teaching church that she was able to go with her children, despite the fact her husband wanted to worship on Saturday and was no longer willing to go to church on Sunday, and that it was a blessing to her and her family that they went to church, even though the husband would not. <clears throat> this article is a little bit dated, but I can just about guarantee the trends they are citing are continuing to this day. 
USA Today runs an article entitled Hebrew Roots Rising. Not quite Christians, not quite Jews. A man named Rico Cortez says, When I kept reading the Bible, I saw that Jesus kept Shabbat. He ate kosher. He kept the faith. He found himself thinking, wait a minute, what's going on? How come we don't do what Jesus did? It's hypocritical. Cortez, 47, decided that the best way to understand the Torah is to really live it. It's the only way. So he became a self-described Torah observant believer in Yeshua or a member of the Hebrew Roots movement. There's a huge awakening all over the world. It's growing by leaps and bounds, he says. Meet the Hebrew Roots movement. On the surface, many of its followers might look like conservative or orthodox Jews. They keep kosher, observe the Sabbath, celebrate Passover, wear stars of David, and speak Hebrew. Some are circumcised and have beards and such. They're extraordinarily pro-Israel and often place an emphasis on how many times they have visited the country. A lot of the first believers in Jesus were Jewish, says Caleb Camaro, a 21-year-old member of the movement. For me, getting closer to the lifestyle is getting closer to my Messiah. But their religion centers on Jesus, whom they refer to as Yeshua, his Hebrew name. And they believe that the right path to following Jesus is to live as he did by observing the Torah, which I'll pause to note is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the laws of Moses. And if you want to know what it means to be a Torah observant keeper while being a follower of Christ, then go home and spend some time reading from Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you'll get a picture of the lifestyle that they are claiming and trying to push on other people. One man says of the rise of the Hebrew Roots Movement, everything is very, very much internet fueled. All of the ministries are online. This wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. There's a lot of good things that come from teaching being available on the internet at the click of a button. There's also a lot of bad things when people who are not grounded in the exposition of the Word of God come across the charismatic teacher, they're in danger of being pulled into legalism. And that's later on in my notes, so I, I need to stick to what I got here. A majority of people in the Hebrew Roots movement <coughs> come from highly religious Christian backgrounds where the Bible is followed very closely. Camaro, for instance, belonged to the Church of God and was inspired by his aunt to go to a Messianic congregation. He started learning Hebrew and beginning to observe the Torah more closely. Nationwide, people are finding the Talmud above the Bible and reading it in Hebrew, he says. Okay, are you still with me? Let me read you one more thing and then I'll see if you're still with me then. What is the Hebrew Roots Movement? The premise of the Hebrew Roots Movement is the belief that the church has, varred, has veered far from the true teachings and Hebrew concepts of the Bible. The movement maintains that Christianity has been indoctrinated with the culture and beliefs of Greek and Roman philosophy, and that ultimately biblical Christianity taught in churches today has been corrupted with a pagan imitation of the New Testament Gospels. Those of the Hebrew roots belief hold to the teaching that Christ's death on the cross did not end the Mosaic Covenant, but instead renewed it, expanded its message, and wrote it on the hearts of his true followers. They teach that the understanding of the New Testament can only come from a Hebrew perspective and that the teachings of the Apostle Paul are not understood clearly or taught correctly by Christian pastors today. Many affirm the existence of an original Hebrew language New Testament and in some cases denigrate the existing New Testament text written in Greek. This becomes a subtle attack on the reliability of the text of our Bible. If the Greek text is unreliable and has been corrupted, as is charged by some, the church no longer has a standard of truth. Although there are many different and diverse Hebrew roots assemblies with variations in their teachings, they all adhere to a common emphasis on recovering the original Jewishness of Christianity. Their assumption is that the church has lost its Jewish roots and is unaware that Jesus and his disciples were Jews living in obedience to the Torah. For the most part, those involved advocate the need for every believer to walk a Torah-observant life. 
This means that the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant must be a central focus in the lifestyle of believers today as it was with the Old Testament Jews of Israel. Keeping the Torah includes keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, celebrating the Jewish feast and festivals, keeping the dietary laws, avoiding the paganism of Christianity, meaning Christmas and Easter, and learning to understand the scriptures from a Hebrew mindset. They teach that Gentile Christians have been grafted into Israel. And this is one reason every born-again believer in Jesus, the Messiah, must participate in these observances. It is expressed by them that doing this is not required out of a legalistic bondage, but out of a heart of love and obedience. However, they teach that to live a life that pleases God, this Torah-observant walk must be a part of that life. Don't go away. The Hebrew Roots assemblies are often made up of a majority of Gentiles, including Gentile rabbis. Usually they prefer to be identified as Messianic Christians. Many of them have come to the conclusion that God has called them to be Jewish and have accepted the theological position that the Torah, again, meaning the Old Testament law, is equally binding on Gentiles and Jews alike. They often wear articles of traditional Jewish clothing, practice Davidic dancing, and incorporate Hebrew names and phrases into their writing and conversations. Most reject the use of the name Jesus in favor of Yeshua or the other ones in Hebrew claiming that these are the true names that God desires for himself. In most cases, they elevate the Torah as the foundational teaching for the church, which brings about the demotion of the New Testament, causing it to become secondary in importance and only to be understood in light of the Old Testament. The idea that the New Testament is faulty and relevant only in light of the Old Testament has also brought the doctrine of the Trinity under attack by many advocates of Hebrew roots beliefs. Some things... Never change. When Paul wrote this letter of Galatians to the churches who were in the region, he addressed it to all of the churches as opposed to the usual tradition of writing it to one church at one location. Because this region, the churches there, had become infested by false teaching that was putting the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ under direct attack. And it came from the same line of thinking, telling Gentile believers in Jesus Christ that they had to be Jewish. In this case, they were telling them they had to be Jewish. They had to be circumcised and keep the law, or they could not even be saved. The book of Galatians is a wonderful book to combat the idea of legalism or of requiring Gentile believers to be Jewish, or even of the very idea that we must perform good works to earn our way to heaven. If you've ever heard of Martin Luther, you know how he's infamous for being the father of the Reformation, and he nailed his 95 thesis to the wall in direct defiance of the Catholic Church of Rome, and he said, you're wrong. Our doctrine is not to come from the Pope. It should be salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and our doctrine should come from the Scripture alone. And it led to this mighty battle where he was persecuted, and I believe imprisoned and excommunicated for daring to speak against the Church of Rome. And Martin Luther loved the book of Galatians. You get the idea from his writings that he was running into this, this, wait a minute, I'm looking at what the Catholic Church has always told me, but now that I've actually started reading the Bible, it doesn't line up. And he said, I came to the verse where Paul said in Romans, the just shall live by faith. And he said, I beat upon that verse and beat upon it. And I said, Paul, what do you want from me? What are you trying to say? And the Holy Spirit told him it means what it says. The just person, the person who is declared justified in the eyes of God, will live rather than being judged by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Martin Luther said about the book of Galatians, I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. That's kind of a weird way to say it, in my opinion. 
But he said, I love this book because no one can look at this book honestly and then come back and tell me that the doctrine that Rome is teaching is the true biblical doctrine because Galatians rebukes it. He used it as an axe to battle Rome. In this letter, Paul uses the phrase liberty 11 times. He references Christ 43 times, the law 31 times, faith 22 times, and the cross six times. It's easy to see at a casual glance what the theme of this letter is, and it's pointing people away from the law, away from the dead and the obsolete, away from the pictures and shadows that were simply to point to Christ and to Christ himself. Paul would call them to answer this question, will you repent or will you continue following teachers who are giving you false doctrine? He would call them to answer Moses or Christ. A dead and obsolete system or a living, risen Savior? Ten verses this morning. Number one, the founding of the churches. In Acts chapter 13, we find that Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church. They were ordained. They were sent out on what we call the first missionary journey. Which, by the way, sidebar, is the way that things were done in the Bible. I know that sometimes churches in an area can be so far apart from the Lord and so much false doctrine that all you can kind of do is follow the Lord for yourself. But in the Bible, what we find is not people generally being lone wolves saying, I'm going to go out and start a church and I'm going to be the leader of a movement but rather the local church got to look and see who expressed that they were called and who was showing evidence that they had gifts and calling into the ministry. And the local church would commission the missionaries that were going to go out and preach the gospel and start new local churches. Even Paul himself was eventually ordained by the church, even though he got his calling directly from Jesus. So I'm just saying a lot of people can seem to be very spiritual and they want to lead either their families or their movement, but they're not making an attempt to be right with the local church and to work within the bounds that God established in the scripture of local congregations. And unless Jesus has showed up to you like he did to Paul, you probably need to be working within the local church before you go out and start and lead your own thing, because I believe it's biblical. Paul and Barnabas were sent out in Acts chapter 13. They preached the gospel and started many churches in the region of Galatia, which you can see borders Asia. Galatia was a region in north central Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey. It was settled by the Celtic Gauls. The name comes from the Greek for Gaul, which was repeated by Latin writers as Gali, meaning land of the Gauls, or in English, Galatians. In Acts chapter 15, a great drama unfolded that we'll revisit in detail later on in this series. But controversy had erupted in Jerusalem and the churches of all the surrounding areas over this very issue. Do we need to tell Gentile believers who have believed in Christ, you have to be Jewish? You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. Some were even claiming you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised after the manner of Moses and unless you keep the law. And to my understanding of the text, others may not have been saying it's necessary for salvation, but they were saying you need to live according to our Jewish rites and rituals. And all of the apostles and pastors of the church of Jerusalem gathered round and had a council and they settled with a letter to say, do not bind Gentile believers to the Old Testament law. It's too much. Peter said, I'm going to preach this chapter later, but basically Peter was saying, God showed me the Gentiles are getting the gospel. And Peter said, why are you trying to put on their backs and on their necks a yoke and a burden that was too heavy for your own fathers to bear? What was the purpose of the law? The law was not saying, here's a good way to get to heaven. The law was God in His mercy saying, you want to know what it takes to get to heaven? This is what it would take. And spoiler alert, none of you will ever be able to keep it perfectly. So the law was given to us to be a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians 3. A teacher to bring us to Christ. But now that we are under Christ, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. And Peter said even the Jews could not bear the Jewish law. So why are you trying to add to Christ? Why are you trying to add to the gospel? Why are you trying to add to the scriptures to tell Gentile believers that they have to be Jewish to be right with God? Well, in Acts chapter 16, as they dispersed, they went through the cities and they delivered that very decree, which came from Jerusalem that was ordained by the apostles and the elders. And the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. 
and they went out through the region of Galatia. Simply noting here in verse number six that they went back to these churches to strengthen them and to deliver the decree that was given by the apostles. God doesn't want you to lay the Jewish law on no non-Jewish people. So Paul established the churches by preaching the gospel. He wrote the book of Galatians to them and he went back to visit them and to see how they were doing in their faith. There is some disagreement over when this letter was written. So I'll not belabor that point. Some people are not sure whether it was written before or after the controversy in Acts chapter 15. Most people think it was probably the very first book that was ever written in the New Testament. Some people think that Paul even wrote it at the end of his life. I think most likely, based upon the evidence of the letter itself, it was most likely written very early, soon after Paul had left them and left them in the faith. He began to hear bad reports of what was going on, and he wrote this letter to correct it and to call them to repent and go back to the truth of the pure gospel. The Galatians, like the inhabitants of the surrounding country, were pagans, and their religion was of a gross and debasing kind. They are said to have worshipped the mother of the gods under the name Agdistus. One of the ancient writers in his hymns calls them a foolish people, which may be what Paul is referencing when he says in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? There were few cities to be found among them with the exception of a few which carried on some trade. But the Apostle Paul knew that these people, just like every other people of every background, race, color, creed, and language, needed Jesus Christ. And they needed the gospel. And they needed to grow in grace. And they didn't need to be told, go back to a system that was intended to break you and get you ready to receive grace. So Paul establishes the churches. He leaves. But he always checked up on the churches too to see how they were doing in their discipleship. So in Thessalonians, we find record that that church was started. They were doing great. And he said, Timothy, would you go back and check on that church? See how they're doing. Timothy was his right-hand man. But Paul loved that church enough that he wasn't worried about losing his help. He was worried about God's work being done. And Timothy went back and visited the church at Thessalonica. And he came back and Paul said, how are they doing? My heart's been so burdened for them. Timothy said, they're walking in faith. They're growing in love. The gospel's being spread abroad in the regions beyond them. God is helping them grow in their faith. They have some questions about eschatology that you need to write them and straighten them out on. But they're doing really good. Well, at some point after Paul had established these churches of Galatia, he sent or perhaps found someone who had been to visit them recently. And he said, how are the churches doing? And the report was given There's a false doctrine spreading like wildfire. It's infesting not just one church, but all the churches of this region. They're teaching legalism. They're teaching you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or you can't even be saved. Paul began to seethe with rage. And he sat down to write this letter from God himself, which Paul always claimed the authority of God on his letters. Number two, the foundation of the letters to the churches. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is an apostle. Apostle means a sent one. It means you're sent to fulfill a very specific purpose. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself had called Paul and sanctioned him to preach the gospel. Here he notes the fact that he's an apostle to defend his apostleship as he often had to do. Not because he was thin-skinned. Not because he wanted the praise. Not because he needed everybody to know, I'm an apostle and you should call me as such and give me my honor. But because his apostleship was constantly under attack by people who were saying, Paul's not really sent from God. Paul's gospel's kind of off. He needed to be straightened out. We'll teach you what the gospel is. Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I am an apostle. And here he says, I'm not made an apostle by man, but by Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's going to go on to say, basically, my calling is a high calling. It came from God. In Acts chapter, what is it? I always forget, 9 in the book of Acts, when God came to Paul when he was on the road 
to Damascus to persecute and kill the church. And Jesus broke through in a blinding light. Then he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul repented of his evil deeds where he had been killing Christians because they were moving away from the Jewish faith. And in the name of God, he killed the people of God. And he repented. And he received the call. For the Lord told him, you will declare many things for my sake. You're going to suffer for my sake. But you're also going to stand before kings and rulers and leaders and preach the gospel. And Paul is saying here, I promise you, I didn't get this from Peter. I didn't get it from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I got it from Jesus himself. There's another apostle that was picked in Acts chapter 1 after Judas was proven to be a false convert. And he went out and hanged himself. And they cast lots and picked a a man, I believe, named Matthias and said, you'll be the 12th apostle. And then in the book of Revelation, I believe it says that on the 12 foundations of the walls, the names of the 12 apostles are written in some form or fashion. It's written in heaven. And I don't know who it is because it just says the 12 apostles. But I kind of have a guess that it's Paul, the one that God picked rather than Matthias, the one that they picked. But Paul was an apostle and he says about himself, they all were called by God when he was here, but I was as a baby born out of due time when it should have been impossible, when it would look like I I was going to die and not going to make it. Jesus came to me and said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You keep sinning. You keep going against me. It's going to be hard for you, but I have a purpose for your life. And our purpose or conversion may not be as dramatic as the Apostle Paul, but I promise you, whatever your past is, it's not as bad as Paul's was. At least I hope not. If you if you killed more people than Paul did, you can still get saved. But I bet nobody here did what Paul did. God still has a purpose for your life. He said, Paul, you're going to be my servant. You're going to be my apostle. And Paul says, before we get down to business, I just want to remind you all, I got my apostleship and the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. I was not appointed by an archbishop sent to your territory and then could be pulled away if the bishop didn't like what I was preaching. But I got my message from the Lord by Jesus Christ and God the Father. The Father who raised Jesus from the dead sent Jesus to call me into the ministry. And what I preach to you is the words of God, not my words. And by the way, we as Christians all owe allegiance to God Himself. I'm thankful for people who invested into my life and gave me opportunities in the ministry. And praise God, there's none of them who are calling me to stop preaching what I'm preaching. But if there was, I would have to say it's the Lord who called me, not man who called me. We owe our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our message must be the message that comes from the Word, not what is popular in that day and hour. We're not to avoid preaching what rebukes the culture or even other Christians around us. If God has said it, we must proclaim it. And Paul said, my ministry, my gospel, this letter itself, my apostleship has come from God. The preacher is not to give his own thoughts. I believe that preparing to preach is not primarily content creation. I think it's investigation. You find out what it says so you can tell what it means. And the preacher is just the mailman. I know I'm a mailman, but all preachers are supposed to just be the mailman (laughs) to say, I got it from God. Here's what it says. And I'm not going to be rude about it. But if you don't like what it says, then take it up with God. Because I'm not telling you what I think. I'm trying to tell you what God says to the best of my ability. And we only have God's authority if we are actually preaching God's word. Okay, verse 2, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. He doesn't mention the brethren. It was often who the brethren were in this case. It was often Barnabas, Titus, or Timothy. But here we don't know. Paul simply wants to make the point, they are standing with me in what I say. Because they know that it is the truth. What a blessing it is to have other people to stand with you when you stand for the truth. By the grace of God, I'll stand for the truth if nobody stands with me. But it sure is a lot more encouraging if you'll stand with me. And sometimes when a preacher comes under attack in a part of the country where they're saying, we're going to throw you in prison if you keep having church because of COVID or whatever the case may be. It's a blessing when other preachers and other Christians can say, we identify with you and your suffering and persecution. Even though I could be quiet, I'm just going to let it be known. We stand where you stand. And that's what the men who were with Paul said. We're standing with you, Paul. You're standing for the truth. And then it's addressed to the churches of Galatia, to all the churches of the region. 
Verse 3, grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the standard greeting that Paul gives in his letters. It's always grace, then followed by peace. Grace and peace. And we have a world today who, as was prophesied, would happen in the last times. They say peace and safety. Peace symbol. Everybody just get along. Say, oh, well, yeah, that conflict in the Middle East. Both of those sides need to just knock it off. Those bad Israelis tucking their kids into bed and those terrorists coming over and murdering their kids. And then the Israelis want to hit them back. Shame on them both. They need to just stop fighting. Why can't they have peace? Because true peace is not going to follow until the true grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has been received by the parties involved. Grace comes. The message of the gospel comes. Then peace will come. Not just peace because we think it's a nice idea. And those who are following the radical Islamic ideology surrounding Israel, it's their fault that there's death and destruction because their religion is telling them to kill all the Jews in the land. Amen. I don't know where we are. <laughs> Verse 4. Who get, I had a week off last week, I'm telling you, so I'm wound up today. And I had three cups of coffee too. <laughs> Verse 4. Speaking of Jesus Christ, this is so beautiful. He says of the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Never forget, this is the theme of the letter. This is the theme of the Bible. It's the pure gospel. It's sufficient for salvation. And it's sufficient for sanctification. It's sufficient for a home in heaven. And it's sufficient for daily living Yes, we need to obey all of the direct commands of Scripture, the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts. But we need to view our life through the lens of grace and through the lens of the gospel and that I'm obeying these things because I love God. I'm doing it out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of debt, trying to earn my way to heaven, for that's futile. He gave himself for our sins. Notice the two words there at the top of the verse, who gave it's the same as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. You see, true biblical love is not just that which takes and seeks selfishly, but it's love that gives. And God didn't look at mankind in our hopeless, lost, miserable estate and say, well, I have a warm, fuzzy feeling towards them. I love them, but that's all I'm going to do about it. No, He had that true love, the agape love, the godly, Christ-like love who said, I'll give my only begotten Son. And Christ said, I will go become one of them, live as one of them, suffer as one of them, take their sorrows upon my back. And then, as that song fits so perfectly with the message this morning, I'll take it all on the cross. Every bitter thought, every evil deed. He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Albert Barnes says of this idea that Christ gave, he gave. He says, if there had not been this benevolence in his bosom, man must have perished forever. He could not have saved himself and he had no power or right to compel another to suffer on his behalf. And even God would not lay this mighty burden on any other unless he was entirely willing to endure it. How much then do we owe to the Lord Jesus? And how entirely should we devote our lives to him who loved us? And gave himself for us. And Jesus says, give your life to me. He says, give your service to me. But don't forget, he was willing to give first. Christ gave. He gave his glory. He gave away his present comfort. He gave his sweat, blood, and tears. He gave his body. He gave the very breath that was in his body. He gave his life. He says he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. The word here for deliver means to pluck out, to tear out. It means literally to rescue. Oh, the glory we will have to sing of for all of eternity. The glorious salvation, the grace of God, whereby He has saved us, that He rescued us and plucked us out of sure destruction, that we might be called the sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. That He might deliver us from this present evil world. The word here for world is sometimes translated as age. It continues, it, it contains the idea of per, perpetuity, continualness. It's saying he's delivered us from the evil that is present with us now, and it will continue to be here. The evil will continue to go all the way till the end. But so does our deliverance, and we have nothing to fear. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, brief, five verse greeting. 
then Paul's going to change up tone real quick and get down to business. He's not going to flounder around. He's going to let him know just what's on his mind and why. Number three, the floundering of the churches. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The word here for marvel means wonder. Paul's saying, I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I'm deeply saddened. I'm amazed and bewildered that you would so soon remove from the true gospel I taught you into a false gospel. Let's pause here for just a second to remember that I promise you, Paul deeply loved this congregation. It shows up in this letter. It shows up in all of them. He said to the church at Thessalonica, we were gentle among you as a nurse cherishes her children as the mother that is breastfeeding the baby. We were gentle with you. We were careful. We sought not our own benefit, but yours. We worked day and night, not receiving any offerings so that we could bring you along in your faith and give you the gospel and loving people is necessary. We will not make a difference for Christ if we don't love people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I could speak in all languages, if I had all the spiritual gifts, if I gave away all my earthly goods to feed the poor, if I have not charity, if I have not biblical love, it profits me nothing. I'm become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Have you ever been to what the orchestra, the opera, the, all the instruments, the formal music, and they have these two things over here, the cymbals, and when the time is just right, they take them and bang them together. And when it fits with the rest of the music, the beautiful symphony, it's great. It reverberates. It, it puts emphasis. It's good. But Paul said, even if you're preaching the truth, if you don't preach it from a heart of love, like the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's like you're standing there banging cymbals together. Bang, 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 bang. You need Jesus. It's not going to work. We have to love people. But at the same time, we do not truly love people if we are too afraid to tell them the truth, to point out error, to preach against sin, and in this case, to identify a false gospel as being false. He said, I marvel that you're so soon removed New Christians, it can be heartbreaking sometimes to see them profess faith in Christ, say that they want to follow the Lord, but then sometimes very soon they show evidence that perhaps they didn't truly receive the gospel, or even if they did, they begin to backslide and not to become a rooted and grounded Christian. As in the parable of the sower, some receive the word with gladness, but the stony soil is eventually revealed when through tribulation, trials, distress, the cares of this present world, they are offended and the word does not take root. That you're so soon removed. There was a reason why, which we'll get into eventually. And that was that there were false teachers who were giving them a false message. And I, I read widely. I listen to a lot of people. Some people I listen to just to see what they're going to say that's wrong. But new Christians especially, be careful that what you're being fed has been recommended by good sources that you trust, that the sources you're feeding from are trying to give you the pure word of God because a false teacher is devastating to a new Christian. John Phillips said on this passage, error, especially when it is wrapped in scripture and presented under cover of a false hermeneutic, can sound very much like the truth. People who are not instructed in the whole counsel of God can become an easy prey for false teachers. A man who does not faithfully exposit the word of God in context during his preaching is in danger of becoming a legalistic teacher. And Christians who are not faithfully fed the word through expositional teaching of the Bible itself are in danger of falling into legalism. I'm not saying everybody has to have the same style that I do. I'm not saying there's only one way that God uses. But what I'm saying is there's an immense danger in pulling one verse from over here and one verse from over there and telling a bunch of funny stories. Because if you're charismatic and you're good at that, you'll get the adoration of the crowd and it feels really good. And there's a temptation to start molding them into your own image instead of to the image of Christ. And if you sit under teaching that week after week is not really giving you the verses in context and what they actually mean and what they actually say in the flow of it and in the large scheme of it, then you're in danger of being seduced into legalism thinking, I'm more spiritual than others because I keep the rules. Not the rules I got from here, because there's a lot of rules in the Bible we do need to keep. But the rules we got from somebody telling me it was a rule when the Bible doesn't really say it was a rule. 
And by the way, I just want to say, I I sort of understand. Sometimes you say, I'm going to preach against legalism. Legalism is bad. And everybody gets nervous. They're like, well, what's he going to do? You know, are we just a couple years away from having a rock music show and being affirming of sinful lifestyles and such and such? Because it's a common charge to anyone who stands for the truth at all. You'll be called a legalist at some point. And I'm not afraid of that. Neither should you. Well, you know, I think maybe according to what I see in the Bible, we should kind of dress modestly and not post pictures of ourselves nearly naked all the time. Legalist! That's what people will say. If you want to preach on anything specific, well, we probably shouldn't do drugs and stuff. Oh, you're a legalist. You're you're just trying to control everybody. You're a moralist. You're a you're a prude. Whatever they want to say. So I think you probably know me, but hold me accountable by the grace of God. If I have anything to do with it, the church is not going woke. The church is not going liberal. The church is not going away from the word of God. By the grace of God, we're going to follow the word of God for our local congregation the way that God leads us to do so. Not to please the media or the populace or the unsaved people or the saved people. Not to please Democrats or Republicans either. I don't know if you've watched any news, but at this point, if you have any faith in politics, uh, it's, it's a raging dumpster fire of biblical proportions on every side all the time. Vote. Get involved. Stand up for what's right. I try to. On the other hand, don't put your faith in that. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Word of God. And the Word of God will always intersect with what we call politics because it has to do with the law of the land. But what we need to do is we need to hear from the Word of God. I'm not afraid of being called a legalist for standing for truth, but I'm also not afraid of legalist. I'm not afraid of people who would criticize what we're trying to do for the Lord because it doesn't line up with their cultural traditions or expectations. We're going to follow the Lord by His grace according to the Bible as He leads us to do with the purpose of pleasing God and of giving the gospel. You see, there are two great rebukes from Paul's letters, and it's the pendulum all throughout church history since the New Testament was written that goes from one end back to the both to the other end, and they both will always need to be dealt with. The one is worldliness, and the other is legalism. One is licentiousness. One is, oh, it's all about grace. It doesn't matter what you do. That's the letter to Corinth. Go read that and see if Paul was in a good mood when he wrote that letter. The other one is legalism. You're not as righteous as I. You need to be Jewish. You need to keep the Torah. You need to be as I am. And Paul dealt with that very clearly all the time. We need the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I marvel you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Then he says, which is not another. It's a false gospel. It's a legalistic works-based gospel that is adding to the pure gospel of grace adding burdensome weights, rules, and regulations that God did not command. Matthew 15, verse 9, In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Deuteronomy 4, 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. You see, the Lord told the Pharisees, You're wrong because you're teaching as doctrines and in place of doctrines, the traditions of man. We're not supposed to teach our own traditions. We're supposed to teach the Bible. But he told his people back in the Old Testament, there's two things you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to take anything out of my commandments. We don't get to gloss over it if it's not going over real well with the time and culture in which we lived. And we may think we have it unique, but look up what happened to the apostles. They were being thrown to the lions for preaching the truth. But God said to His people in Israel, there's another commandment you're not supposed to add to it either. And that's exactly what they did. And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. I got get, I got one page here. I got to get through this. It's a, it's a long page too. <coughs> Okay, so in flow, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Here the idea is the false teachers were troubling them. They were perverting the gospel. And it wasn't a gospel at all. Another gospel is not the gospel at all. Another Jesus is not the true Jesus of the word. We don't get to define the terms. Islam says, we love Jesus too. 
But look at what they say about Jesus. They say Jesus was not truly the son of God. He was just a messenger from God, equal like the prophet Muhammad would be. And it says that when it came time for him to die, that God miraculously put his likeness upon another person and the crowd crucified somebody else thinking they were crucifying Jesus. And Jesus was taken to heaven without shedding his blood on the cross. Didn't work out too well for the poor guy who God made to look like Jesus and got put on the cross too. But whoever that would have been, his blood is not sufficient to pay for sins. So the Jesus that Islam describes is not a Jesus that can save us from our sins. It's another Jesus. It's a false teaching about Jesus. The Mormons say, well, we love Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. But get down to the truth of what they believe, which they won't tell you at the front door, by the way, which is part of what makes me angry because the apostles of God said this thing was not done in a corner. It's not a secret. It's not a secret society. You have to get in to find out what the 12 levels of truth are. It should be out in the open. They won't tell it to you at their door, but what they actually believe is that Jesus was created by the Father the same way that Satan was created so that they are spiritual brothers. And He did not exist from all time and His blood is not sufficient to pay for our salvation. They'll say Jesus is a God, but they believe they can become a God one day too. This is another Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe Jesus was created by Jehovah. This He was created as Michael the Archangel at the time and is a lesser God than God the Father. They say Jesus was only human when he was incarnate, not God in the flesh. They say there was no physical resurrection. It's just a spiritual concept. And they say the second coming of Jesus was an invisible spiritual event that occurred in 1914. And they say that salvation requires faith, but also being in their church and keeping their rules. And that hell is not eternal, but it's a place of annihilation. Okay. So, let me see here. Okay, I'll hold off on that one thought. Please be patient with me. We don't have Sunday night church or Sunday school, okay? So it's okay if we take a couple extra minutes here. At least that's my opinion. Verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Isn't it so interesting to look up at the teachings of Mormonism and of Islam and of Jehovah's Witness and to find that in each and every case, they claim that an angel showed up from heaven and gave them a gospel that contradicts the gospel in the Bible. And here God warned about it very specifically. The Latter-day Saints say that on September 21st, 1823, an angel appeared to Joseph Smith to inform him that he had been chosen to restore God's church. Islam says that in 610 BC, the angel Jabril or Gabriel appeared to Muhammad and began to give him the Quran. Paul says here, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Was he being clear here? Did he need to repeat himself? Do we have to debate what he actually meant? No, he says there's one gospel. He even says, we, if I ever start preaching a different gospel, then kick that out too, because God defines the gospel. And as also happened, there were letters that went out fraudulently claiming to be from the apostle Paul that Paul didn't write. And that made him angry too. And the Jehovah's Witness have a Watchtower Bible. Watchtower Bible. You see, our New Testament has over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that are existent to this day that we're able to look at and compare. And I believe if you go to the received text, the Textus Receptus, the, text, the traditional text, you will find letter by letter, word by word, what the Bible actually says. It wasn't made up by the translation in front of me, and that's on the screen. It came from an authority. It was God's preserved word. But the Jehovah's Witness doctrine does not match what is contained in the Greek New Testament. So they made their own with no basis, no textual basis or evidence. And in John chapter 1, the Watchtower Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was a God. Lowercase g. I love everybody and I want to call everybody to the truth. But Paul said, we will not mince words if you change the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him be accursed. The word is anathema. It means excommunicated, cursed by God, damned, eternally condemned. This is not on our authority to our pleasure. 
This is on the authority of the Word of God to the breaking of our hearts to call out to the world around us and say, if you go to a Baptist church, but you're trusting in being a Baptist churchgoer to go to heaven, you're wrong too. It's about what the Bible says. And it's only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else is sufficient. Everything else is a false gospel and brings God's curse upon it. John Phillips says, as far as God is concerned, to tamper with so great a salvation is to tamper with the eternal destiny of a soul and is a damnable offense. This is God's own evaluation. What a horrid thing to lead another soul astray from the gospel. Last verse. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 4. With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or man's judgment. He that judgeth me is the Lord. He that judgeth me is the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 But as we were allowed of God to be in trust with the gospel, even so speak we not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Luke 6, 26, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. If no one ever has a bad thing to say about you when you're claiming to teach the Bible, it's a sign of a false prophet, Jesus said, because the message always chafes, the message always rebukes, the message always cuts like a sword. Sometimes you're studying to preach it to other people, and it cuts you like a sword because it's a mirror. It shows us where we're wrong. It shows us how to get right. And we can't change what it says to try to please men. Paul says here, I could just go with the flow and please the teachers among you. But I will not. I'm here to please God, not man. In 2014, the mayor of Houston, Texas, sent out subpoenas to a large group of local pastors. And the subpoena said, turn over any sermon notes you have that deal with the issues of homosexuality, gender identity, or that mention the mayor by name. The mayor being the first openly lesbian mayor of Houston, Texas. And some people said, well, my sermon notes are in my Bible. And she said, then send in your Bible. Look, they could sue and they got out of it because it was clearly unconstitutional. But if you're not looking around preparing that in our lifetime this type of thing is possible to keep happening, then you're not paying attention. Because it's not just where the undercurrent's going now, it's the history of all mankind. Because tyrants do not like the message of the Word of God being preached. That I can promise you. So, I've tried very hard when I preach. I want to preach the truth. But I intentionally weigh my words. Sometimes when it's about the worst of of issues, I write it out. Not because I'm afraid, but because I want to be biblical. I have no use for being a shock jock. I have no use for saying it in the craziest possible way so that people will watch me on the internet. I want to be biblical. I want to say what the Bible says. But with that being said, I have thought about it. And I promise you, if they outlaw preaching against the sins of LGBTQ or anything else, we'll be preaching about it the next Sunday. And I say that not to be braggadocious because I don't want to go to prison. I promise you that. But there are some things that if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, a man and a minister of the gospel, there are some things my conscience will not allow me to do. And one is to bow the knee when someone says, you may not preach the word of God. We should respect the elected officials. We should pray for them. We should obey the law. But when they said, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they stood on their feet and in no unequivocal terms said, we ought to obey God rather than man. That's where our allegiance is. And I'd hate to get to heaven someday and bow my head in shame because I was ashamed to say what the Bible said. Well, I still had an opportunity to say so. And when the bullets start flying and when it gets hot, that's when it's time to stand up and say, you can throw me in your furnace if you want to. I'm obeying God. And if you don't love people, if you thrive on rebuking and yelling and and hatefulness, then you shouldn't be a preacher. But if you don't have any courage, then you shouldn't be one either. And it's not just preachers. It's all Christians. God help us. God deliver us from preachers who would be prosperity gospel preachers or going with the flow just to try to get a crowd. God said, let your voice be like a clear trumpet and don't let there be any confusion as to what you actually said. Tell them what I told you to say. So to close this morning, 
What have we taken from or added to the gospel? Is it a new way to get to heaven? Or have we added to the gospel a manner of living, expectations and rules that are not even in the Bible? Is the gospel sufficient? There's two kinds of legalism. One says you have to keep the rules to go to heaven. The other says you have to keep my rules to be right with God, even if you are a Christian. Do we have the gospel clearly defined, clearly enough, that we will not fall for another gospel when it is presented to us? And next week, we'll look at the high cost of legalism. Let's bow for prayer. Jason, if you would take over from here, let's have a lengthy time of prayer and music, and we will prepare for the baptism as well.